I invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon this morning. We continue our series in Luke chapter 6 that we're doing through the weeks of Lent. We are in Luke chapter 6. Today we're going to look at verses 37 through 42. Luke 7, excuse me, Luke 6, verses 37 to 42. I ask you to please stand with me as we read from Holy Scripture together. Remember, these are the words, the holy words of God for us, His people, and these are the words of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word today. Father, we thank you that you have given us an inspired, infallible, all-sufficient, authoritative, and powerful word. We ask that you would take this word and bless the reading, and now especially the preaching. And may your Holy Spirit take this word and sow the seed into every heart today and cause it to take root in good soil and to grow and to bear fruit in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Over the last two weeks, we've been looking at Luke 6, verses 27 to 36, and we've been covering Jesus' teaching about loving your enemies. Loving your enemies. Not a popular commandment from Jesus. One that is, one that gets us right where we least want to be got one that's hard and not natural for us, one that raises lots of questions. And if we had, you know, tons more Sundays, we could go through all those different questions. But that's what we've been looking at, loving our enemies. And we saw when we looked at uh, verses 27 to 31, we looked at how we're supposed to love with detachment. 
Right? We're supposed to turn the other cheek. We're supposed to bless those who curse. If they take our cloak, we're supposed to give our tunic. If someone begs, we give. If someone asks for something, we give. If someone takes, we don't demand it back. In other words, we have detachment from the things that the world values so that we can value the things of the kingdom of God, so that we can value the things that God values, so that we can love without the hindrances and restrictions of being so obsessed with our own good or our own rights or our own stuff. So we have to play a, have to hold loose to the things of this world so that we, when those things are attacked by our enemies, we can respond not with hatred, not with retaliation, but we can respond as Christ calls us to respond, as Christ himself responded, with the love of God. And he told us in verse 31, the golden rule, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Let that be your standard. Don't let your standard of how you love people be how they treat you. That standard's much too low for the kingdom. The, have the high standard of do unto others as you would be done by. This is what I called last week a divine love ethics. What I get from verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, verse 36, even as your Father is merciful. We are to love like God. We are to be filled with His generous mercy. God is love. His nature is generous Mercy, and we are called to be like that, to be conformed into what that looks like, the image of that, which is seen perfectly and most clearly in Jesus Himself. That's where we've been the last couple of weeks. And now, this week, Jesus, in the very next breath, after He just got done saying, Love your enemies, and explaining it from 27 to 36, this week, Jesus extends this divine love ethic from loving enemies to the more general category of how we reflect God's character in our attitudes and our dispositions towards one another. So this isn't just about enemies now. This is about all of us in general, enemy or not, all of our neighbors that we're supposed to love as ourselves. Jesus moves seamlessly from verse 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful, into a discussion now of what it means and what it looks like to be a genuine child of God. Someone who lives out God's love consistently in your relationships with each other. And Jesus in our passage gives us three areas where our divine love ethic must be genuine and consistent. One, in our standards for ourselves and others. Second, in our criticism of ourselves and others. And then third, in our accountability of ourselves and others. And as we go through this passage, we'll see that the main idea Jesus drives home is that even if we are not consistent in living out God's character, God always is consistent. We might act out of character. God never does. And, and God will see to it, therefore, that we get as good as we give in the Christian life. 
In other words, what I'm saying is that in this passage, Jesus teaches what I'm calling, perhaps somewhat scandalously, Christian karma. Christian karma. That's where we're going today. So let's begin with the first point. Measure for measure. Verses 37 and 38. If you embody the ethics of the kingdom of God, the divine love ethic, you will look like God and you will live like Jesus. Verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Because that's what he's like. He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You'll be sons of the Most High. Well, God already has a son. That's Jesus. And so you will start to look like the Son of God, Jesus. You will grow in your family resemblance to our elder brother, Jesus, and to God, our Father. You will be merciful like God is if you embody this ethic of the kingdom, to be merciful even as your Father is merciful. If that is genuinely who you are, Christian... If that's genuinely who you are, what does it look like to live that way consistently? That's what this section is about, a continuation of this kingdom ethics. If we have a divine love ethic based on imitating God's generous mercy, what sort of standard should we use in how we measure ourselves and others? Well, Jesus, uh, in verses 37 and 38, he illustrates the standard first. He gives some examples, and then he explains it at the end. So let's look at the illustrations. He gives four examples as he illustrates what the standard ought to be. Four examples. Two of them are negative. Don't do this. Two of them are positive. Do this. Let's look at them. Verse 37. He says, judge not... Condemn not. There's your two don'ts. Don't judge. Don't condemn. And here's your two do's. Forgive and give. Give and forgive. Don't judge. Don't condemn. What's he getting at? Well, this is the favorite one of anybody who's doing wrong but doesn't want you to call them out. Now, hold on a second, brother, sister. Listen, Jesus said, don't judge. You can't judge a book by its cover. You don't know my heart. You had not walked in my shoes. You don't know what I'm going through. Or if we're talking to each other and we say, you know, I saw so-and-so do this, and I don't think that's a biblical thing to do. That seems like maybe a sin. You don't know that person's life. Judge not, Jesus said. How dare you? Well, okay, but... Jesus said also, usually it's, it's, they don't go here to Luke 6. They go to Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not lest ye be judged. It's always in the King James. We, I don't know why it's always in the King James, but it just sounds more powerful, I guess. Judge not lest ye be judged, brother, in the King's English. And it's like, okay, fine, I hear you. But, you know, later in that same chapter, Matthew 7, and later in Luke 6, he's going to say, you, can, you know a tree by its fruit. Jesus, you can't know my tree by my fruit. Yes, I can. (laughs) I know what kind of tree you are. I can just look at your fruit. And I can tell what kind of tree you are. 
And also, Jesus at the end of our passage says, make sure you take the log out of your own eye so that you can see the speck in your brother's eye. So I should be able to see the specks. Sounds like you're judging me. We love this one because it's our loophole. It's our get out of jail free card. It's our I can get away with it. You can't tell me any different because that's judging. Well, what's Jesus actually talking about? Jesus is not saying you are not allowed to draw a conclusion to make an inference about a person based on how they live. You can take the Bible and say, all right, the Bible says a Christian looks like this, loves like this, lives like this, and I see you, and you don't live like that, you don't love like that, you don't look like that. There's this big, obvious contradiction between how a Christian ought to live by the book and then how you're living. And I'm not saying I know everything and I'm not saying that I have God's infallible knowledge of your heart, but I am saying best in my best, most honest, sincere evaluation, I've got you can know a tree by its fruit. I'm looking at what the fruit ought to be. I'm looking at how rotten and stinking the fruit actually is. And I'm just saying, I don't have any confidence based on the Bible, not based on me and how you know awesome I am, but just... It looks like there's an inconsistency. Maybe there's some rotten fruit we need to think about. Jesus is not saying you can't do that. He's not saying that you can't come to a conclusion, make an evaluation. Otherwise, we could never do church discipline. We could never hold each other accountable. And you could get away with, with anything. So what's his point? Judge not. Well, you're not the one who's on the throne at the last day. At least I hope you're not. You're not the one who's... At the, who's behind the bench, slamming the gavel, calling the shots, making the pronouncements. Right? We don't get to be judge, jury, and executioner of our fellow Christians or anybody else. Doesn't mean you can't have opinions. Doesn't mean you can't draw certain inferences based on the Bible. Doesn't mean any of that. It means don't be a judgmental, look down your nose, I get to make the decisions about your... I, I can tell if you're in the kingdom or not, and I'm going to decide if you're in the kingdom or not. And of course, I am. <laughs> and none of you are. It's that kind of stuff. He's talking about this snobbery. He's talking about this haughty, judgmental attitude where I get to cast the verdict on your Christianity and your salvation. And I get to decide, are you in the kingdom or not? Well, you're not the guardian at the gate of the kingdom. You don't get to call those shots. Don't be judgmental. Condemn not. Same, same idea. You're not the one who pronounces on anybody else's eternal destiny. Don't judge. Don't be judgmental. Don't have a condemning, right people off attitude. Don't do those things. And then he says, forgive. Forgive. When people sin and then they ask for forgiveness, you are to give them forgiveness. Or when people are in need, you're supposed to give. And not shun and ignore and neglect and cast them off and write them off and say, take a hike. I'd rather use these resources on myself. He, he's trying to get us out of ourselves. What kind of standards should we use in our relationships with others? Are we judgmental? Are we condemning? Do we forgive or do we hold grudges? Do we keep score? Do we give or are we stingy 
and selfish and miserly. What sort of standards are we using is the question. And then those are the illustrations, right? Then he explains what he means. He explains what he's getting at the end of verse 38. He says, after give and it will be given to you, he adds this, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Now that is an image from the marketplace. That's about someone who's going to the market to get some grain. Right? And, they, and it says into your lap. There's not, there's not a good word for it in English, I guess. But the way they had their garments is they would actually, for their, for their outer cloak, they would actually put their hands under and then hold up and make a little pocket so you could put grain in. And then they kind of kind of wrap it and carry it off where they're going. It's, it's a big pocket. We don't wear clothes like that. So, you know, they had to say lap. So he's saying that in the marketplace, what kind of measurement do you want? Well, you want a good measure, a fair and honest measure. You want to get what you're paying for. A good measure, an accurate, fair measure that's pressed down. No, 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 no. Don't just sprinkle it. I want you to press it down. When I, made, I made some cookies yesterday. I'm feeling very domestic lately. And I made some snickerdoodle cookies. They were fantastic. But... Uh, anytime and I make chocolate chip cookies, I, I like making cookies. Well, my recipe for chocolate chip cookies says to use a certain amount of brown sugar, and it says packed, right? So I scoop the brown sugar, and it's not sitting there fluffy and loose. No, I pack it down, so I want a full scoop. I want a full measure. I want a good measure. Press it down. No, no empty little air pockets in my scoop. I want, a, I want it full and packed. So I'm not missing anything. I want a good measure. I want it pressed down. Shake it together like I tap the little cup on the, on the counter so that it gets down in there. I pack it down. Running over. I want a heap. Pack down with a heap. Alright? That's what Jesus is talking about. They wanted their grain honest. They didn't want you to be to skimp out. They didn't want any kind of stinginess. Give me a good measure. Good measure, pressed down, shaken, over, shaken down, running over will be put into your lap. Okay? That's what you want. When you're getting grain, when you're, making, when you're baking stuff, you want it measured right. And then he says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words... You get what you give, Christian. We have phrases for this in our culture. We say, what goes around comes around. Or more biblically, you reap what you sow. This is what I'm calling Christian karma. Measure for measure is what you will get. If you judge, you're going to get that measured back to you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. You're going to get a heap of judgment. <laughs> if you condemn, you're going to get some condemnation back. A good measure. It's going to be pressed down, shaken together, running over, right into your lap. You want to judge? Here's some judgment. You want to condemn? Okay. I can measure by that standard too, God says. Here's a little condemnation for you. 
So it's a warning. But it's also, also holds out a promise. You know, Paul says this in Galatians chapter 6. Paul just intuits Jesus. He just channels Jesus to us here. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 10. Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do good to everybody, especially your fellow believers. Why? Because as you sow, that's what you're reaping. You put those seeds in the ground, that's what's going to grow. In your relationships, in your Christian walk, that's what's coming up. What you put in the ground is that's what's coming up. And you can, put, you can sow for the flesh and you can get the crop of the flesh. Or you can sow to the Spirit and get the fruit of the Spirit. Which crop do you want? You will get what you give. You will reap what you sow. What goes around is going to come around. So what do we make of this? Why am I calling this karma? Well, it's just to make a point. It's just to be shocking, I guess. What I'm, not, what I'm talking about is not the actual Hindu doctrine of karma. Right? So Hindus believe in reincarnation. So whatever you did in your previous incarnation, in your previous life, whatever you did there, that's what you're reaping in this life. We often think of karma as like, if I did something bad a week ago, something's going to get me this week. And that's not karma. That's not, that's not what karma is. At least that's not what Hinduism teaches about karma. So it's, you know, stuff we did in a past life catches up with us in this life. So if people are suffering in this life, well, it's because they deserved it in their past life. So I'm not talking about that. That's, that's completely foreign to Scripture. I'm not talking about that. And I'm not talking about always getting what some people call instant karma either. I, I have some examples of this. I, I had some fun researching. I just type, just go to Google and type in instant karma and just see what, what hilarity uh, you find. My favorite was this one. Um, guy was on a subway, on the subway, heading to work, and somebody, uh, they get to their stop, and somebody just rudely rushes past him, just bumps him, doesn't even apologize. In fact, he got mad at him. So he says, this guy just bumps past me, and he, and he just come, goes past, and I said, you know, watch it, buddy. And, he's just, and he, he flings out some cuss words at me, tells me where I should go, and then gets off the subway ahead of me. And then he's lost in the crowd and he's gone. Well, I get to work and imagine that guy's surprise when he walked into an interview with me. <laughs> Instant karma. All right? Um, I have a personal example as well. Um, we have, uh, where I grew up, we still have this, there's a basketball goal. Uh, right beside the driveway, and there was this row of pine trees off this way. And, uh, well, and, I, and the ball got stuck in one of those pine trees one day. Well, I was, I, you know, I won't tell you how old I was because how foolish this was. Uh, but the ball got stuck in the pine tree. I thought, well, and I couldn't quite get to it, so I thought, I'm going to throw something at it. 
So I went and picked up one of those little garden shovels. Right? A metal little garden shovel. And I threw that thing at that ball, and it came right back and hit me square in the forehead. <laughs> I mean, instant karma. I was like, I'll get it. And I threw it, and I could not believe how hard it hit me right between the eyes. Knocked me for a loop. I will not tell you how old I was when that happened. All right, so I'm not talking about Hindu karma, and I'm not even necessarily talking about this sort of instant karma where it's like, yes, you deserved that so much just then. That's, that's not really what I'm talking about. What I think Jesus is getting at here about this measure for measure, the measure you use will be measured back to you, I think what he's getting at is this. God governs a moral universe with his moral law. God governs the physical universe with the laws of nature, physical laws. He upholds the laws of gravity and the atomic forces and all this stuff. And he keeps the universe spinning. And because the laws of nature are constant, you can expect cause and effect will always happen. Well, God also governs a moral universe. He has woven the moral law into the very fabric of his creation. Sometimes we refer to this as natural law. Not just the laws of nature, but a moral, natural law. And he oversees that cause and effect moral process in which he holds you accountable to the standards you hold others to. God oversees this process so that when we act in immoral ways, there are moral consequences that come as a result of that. Not necessarily instantly, maybe years later, and maybe sometimes we think we get away with it. But the way he makes every account square at the end, the way he balances the moral books at the end is with the final judgment, where he judges everyone according to their deeds. So the good measure is coming now Years from now, or at the last day. We don't just get to sin with impunity. God governs a moral law, and Jesus says one of the ways he governs this law is that he sees to it that the standard you decide to use is the standard he uses with you in the cause and effect of our moral behavior. That's why when we're judged, we get judged. And if we don't judge, we won't get the judgment. Condemning leads to condemning. If you sow condemnation, you reap it. If you sow forgiveness, you'll reap it. If you sow generosity, you will reap generosity. And if you contradict those things, you'll reap the opposite. This is why I'm saying it's measure for measure. You will be judged by God the way that you judge. And again, this could bring great blessing. If you're a generous, forgiving, not judgmental, not condemning, compassionate, merciful, with generous mercy the way God is, that's the kind of stuff you're reaping. That's the good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, a heap of generous mercy comes back to you. And God oversees that whole process. It could bring great blessing or it could bring great Whoa. And we have these terrifying lines, these very unsettling lines in the Bible, where Jesus says, forgive and you will be forgiven. What do you think the opposite of that is? Well, we don't actually have to wonder because Jesus says, in Matthew's version of the sermon, 
In Matthew 6, 14 and 15, forgive and you will be forgiven. If you don't forgive people their trespasses, neither will God forgive you of yours. And isn't that how we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive others? Uh Uh-oh. Am I forgiving others? Because that's how I'm asking God to treat me. So we're asking for it every week. Now let's be clear, we're not talking about the forgiveness of justification. Like how you get saved. We're not talking about the gospel. We're talking about after you're saved, now you're living the Christian life. And as the Westminster Confession says, even though we're justified completely from our sin when we're converted to the Lord, by faith alone, through grace alone, we still have to live a Christian life in relationship with God. And in that relationship, there are still sins we have to ask for forgiveness for. The confession says God continues to forgive the sins of the justified because we're in a relationship with Him. It's not a salvation issue, it's a fellowship issue. And do you want God to withhold forgiveness of your sins when you ask Him to forgive you? Then don't withhold forgiveness when other people ask it from you. We need to have the standards that reflect who God is. This is a divine love ethic. Does God judge and condemn? Then why do you? Does He give and forgive? Then why don't you? Why don't I? If God has so loved us, and if we claim to be His children, it is pure hypocrisy to treat others with a different standard than the one we want God to use for us. It all goes back to verse 31. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Second point. Jesus addresses not only our standards for treating others, he also targets how we criticize others. And to do this, he uses a multifaceted parable in verses 39 to 41. Look at it with me. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Let's just stop there. Let's start with verse 39. Verse 39 again. He told him a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? What's he talking about? What's this illustration supposed to prove? What Jesus is saying, if you can't see, how can you help somebody else see? If you can't tell where you're going, how do you expect to help someone else find the way they should go? Like if your eyes don't work, how can you be someone else's eyes? Or if I was to update Jesus' illustration, I would say it like this. Would you go see a blind eye doctor? Do you want a blind eye surgeon to operate on you? I mean, you could, you could roll the dice, but I, I'm going to take the bet that you're both going to end up blind. Right? If we're blind and we're trying to lead the blind... <laughs> 
Jesus says, you're both going to fall in the ditch. Can you imagine one blind person? Can someone help me? Another blind person, yeah, yeah, follow me. And then they just veer off in opposite directions and wander around until they both fall in ditches on the opposite sides of the road. This is, Jesus is using a humorous, a humorous like, mental picture of one blind person saying, no, this way, this way. And he's like, and, he, and, they're, and they're wandering around, no, follow me. Can the blind lead the blind? You're both going to end up blind. You're both going to end up in the ditch, in the pit. His, what's his point? Why do you presume that you can see and criticize others as blind? When actually you're the blind one. If we're acting like this, and like, like we were in verses 37 and 38, we're judging, we're condemning, we're not forgiving, we're not generous. We're the ones who have the eye problems. We're the ones who can't see. We're the ones who need someone to take us by the hand and say, no brother, no sister, this way. And yet we're the ones acting like we can see and we're going around the people that we think are blind and trying to help them with their flaws and their faults. The blind leading the blind, the sinful trying to criticize the sinful. If you can't even see yourself correctly, why do you think you can see others correctly? That's verse 40. Uh, Jesus here gives a warning and he gives an encouragement. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Jesus is, is pausing here to tell his disciples, look, you are not yet fit to be leading or guiding anybody. You're still my disciples. You are still in training. You are not in the right state you don't see clearly enough to lead anybody yet. But you're in training. You're on the way. And he says, every student when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. You are in training. You will get there. You're on your way. But right now, you cannot see the way you think you can see. You cannot accurately criticize others because you have these other things that blind you to your own self. And then we get verse 41. We get an illustration for why people like this are blind. I love this. Verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So imagine somebody with a two-by-four sticking out of their head. And they're like, oh, I see a speck over there. I see a speck in someone's eye. Here, let me get that for you. Whap. Right? Or, or even better, even better. Uh, imagine someone is trying to give you an eye exam, but they have a toothpick stuck in their eyeball. Okay? There's a toothpick in their eye, and they're like, oh, let me see if I can get that out of your eye. The closer they get, if they try to get up to your eye with that toothpick, they're going to blind you. It's going to be stuck in your eye. This is why the blind lead the blind. You got sticks and toothpicks and splinters sticking out of your eye and you're trying to give people eye exams. You're blinding people and you're the blind one. You can't even see the toothpick. <laughs> you can't even see the beam. <laughs> the two-by-four. And you're going around whacking people with that two-by-four sticking out of your eye, trying to see the little dust mite, the little speck that's in their eye. Jesus is being over the top. He's being humorous, but he's trying to make a real serious point. 
We criticize the flaws and faults and failings of other, even if they're small, and we look past our own. We have these whopping failures and faults and flaws, and we just conveniently look around them or miss them out somehow so that we can see those specks in other people's eyes. Why do we do that? Why do we criticize others more severely than we criticize ourselves, especially when they mess up? When I mess up, oh, well, I, there's so many reasons it's not that big of a deal. There's so many ways I can spin it to where it's not as bad as it might look, sound, or seem. But let that person mess up, and there's no mercy, and we're, I'm calling you on it, and you're getting what you deserve. As I've heard one, one teacher put it, we judge others more critically than we judge ourselves because we judge other people by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions. And that's how we justify it. That's exactly right. That's what Jesus is getting at. That's what he's getting at. We conveniently overlook the log in our eye so we can see the speck in someone else's. So, last point. What we need to do? We need to break the cycle. If, this, if we're stuck in this Christian karma cycle, we've got to break the cycle. Jesus gets to the root of the problem here in verse 42. He says, How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You... Hypocrite. There's the root problem. The hypocrisy that lies deep in our moral souls. Kingdom ethics, divine love ethics cannot abide hypocrisy. Hypocritical standards, point one, lead to hypocritical criticism, point two. And then they lead to hypocritical accountability. Oh, come here, brother. Let me get that speck out of your eye. And you just say, look at that log in yours. And you're going to come help me with some specs. We all go around trying to be, to, trying to give each other eye exams way too often. We need to look in the mirror first. We have to break the cycle so that we can actually hold each other accountable in a genuine way, in a kingdom way, in a divine love way. Again, judge not doesn't mean don't hold anybody accountable, don't notice any sin, sweep it under the rug, conveniently ignore it, let's let it go because I don't want to be the one to judge. That's not what it means. It means fix our own eyes first, break this ugly cycle, fix your eyes, pull out the beams and sticks, wash out your eyes, cleanse those eyes so that you can see clearly how to help somebody else with the things that actually are in their eyes. We have specks in our eyes and we need help getting them out. Some of us have this, the logs in our eyes and we need help getting them out. We are supposed to hold each other accountable. We're supposed to be honest when someone sins. We're supposed to, to help each other. We're supposed to be there for each other. But we're not supposed to do it like hypocrites. That's the bottom line. We have to break the cycle so that we can do real accountability with each other. It's loving and generous and not judgmental and condemning. We need to have our eyes opened and cleansed. Christian, you need to chop down the log of hypocrisy that obstructs your vision 
so that you can fully live out the love of God genuinely and consistently. I end with verse 41, or excuse me, verse, uh, verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Christian, you and I, we are in training. We need our attitudes and our dispositions and our standards to be transformed by the love of God. We need to have our eyes healed and cleansed and opened. We need to have our hearts changed so that we get rid of that critical spirit, so that we have honest standards, so that we use a good measure with one another, so that we can walk in full, free, open, glorious fellowship with the Lord and with each other, so that we can actually help each other and hold each other accountable. So all of us, starting with pastor, let's take those logs out of our eyes. Let's be honest with ourselves. Let's go to God for the forgiveness we need. And let us trust Him that He will see to it that we are fully trained, that we really will become the disciples of Jesus who love like Him and look like Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this, for this wonderful word. We thank you that Jesus came to us and that he opened his mouth and taught us these glorious things about you, about your world, about your ways with us. We're thankful for the hope of the gospel that covers all of our sins, that covers how we've messed up in these areas and how we need to be changed. We have power in the gospel by the Holy Spirit through your word to really work that cleansing and change into our own eyes into our hearts, into our relationships. So help us to have kingdom standards, to live by kingdom ethics, to trust in the gospel for the forgiveness that we need, and then to go forth and be filled with that love that you have for us and to give it freely, to pour it out for one another so that we can be the people of God that you've called us to be, pleasing, faithful citizens of your kingdom. For your name's sake and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.